Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Epornis Island, by H.G. Wells. This is first published in the Pall Mall Budget, which was a newspaper, on December twenty seventh, eighteen ninety four. Uh, it gets republished a number of places, including a collection from 1895 called The Stolen Bacillus and Other Incidents. Um, 30 Strange Stories is another H.G. Wells collection. And then it got a publication in the magazine. We're reading it from Pearson's um, in 1905 uh, on in both the U.K. and uh, the United States with different art on the inside for both, and also in an issue of Amazing Stories in 1927. Um, despite all these publications and it being in H.G. Wells stories, it is, uh, it's pretty well forgotten. I think most people don't think of it. I know you'd heard of it, but uh, it wasn't, you know, uh, when you were, uh, um, had foremost in your mind in terms of H.G. Wells, I don't think, right? I had read it years ago, but it wasn't one that struck me yeah, it's, uh, significantly, and it's not one I've ever written about or taught. Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny story, I think, because it it's doing a number of things. Um, does it qualify as science fiction? Not exactly, but it's definitely adjacent to it, and it's about uh, – I kind of think of it as like a uh, a mini Jurassic Park you know, sort of story. Um, mm. And yet, it's not about dinosaurs, exactly. It, it is about a, a, an extinct species of bird, an epornis. Um, but I think it has a lot more of the H.G. Wells um, traits that I, I, always, I always wonder about this guy. What is he trying to tell us about humans and their relationship to uh, reality? I, I think this story has a lot to say in that department. So I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on it, but um, maybe before we do that, you would like to tell everybody who hasn't yet read it what happens in the story? Sure. It is, as one would expect with H.G. Wells, quite fluidly written. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, it it feels easy to read. Uh, the, The language is vivid. It's not confusing. And yet, when you think about it, it turns out to have uh, depth thematically at the very least. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a good story in terms of Wells. Uh, the story is a, an embedded narrative. Our outer narrator meets someone who uh, he recognizes must have worked for an explorer, someone who's collecting oddities. Uh, or he's working for a company that sells the the collected the collected goodies that these people bring back to England with them uh, and to sell on to collectors. Um, and he says, well, "I've got this story for you." Mm-hmm. Um, and then mostly what we get is this fellow telling the story. Although, as in the time machine, there's the occasional interruption reminding us that we're getting a story within a story. We were reminded of the outer frame. 
And then at the end, we uh, are asked, so uh, this was really a very unusual incident, wasn't it? Which, again, is typical of H.G. Wells. That is to say, he ends his stories in such a way as to leave us with a residual ambiguity that requires us to make some decisions. He is, as he said in experimental autobiography, um, basically a teacher. Mm-hmm. And this this... The story does that. So what's the story that the innermost fellow tells? He tells that he was out um, in the South Pacific uh, hunting for goodies hired by a particular company. And in the process of doing this, he winds up hiring a couple of natives. They go to, to uh, actually it's in Madagascar, um, so it's not the South Pacific. It would be the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. They go about uh, north of Anantarivo, uh, the capital, and a swampy area on the east coast of Madagascar. And there they manage to find four large Apiornis eggs. Um, Apiornis is an extinct giant bird. Mm-hmm. I mean, giant bird. Um each egg is holds liters worth of stuff. Um, and wow, what a find this would be. He'd be able to get paid a lot for this. And uh, that would be nice, except that as they are walking along, um, one of them gets one of the eggs gets uh, dropped because one of the local helpers, uh, he says, is bitten by a centipede. Mm-hmm. So that egg is, is useless although they keep the shell because that itself is valuable, the fragments. Um, that helper, as are the other helper, is the other helper, they're referred to by the N-word. Mm-hmm. And the whole issue of imperialism is quite vivid in this story. Um, and indeed, there is a, there are direct references to Robinson Crusoe, mm-hmm. the fellow who's telling the inner story, so that he always liked Robinson Crusoe. He dreamed of having a life like that when he was young. Robinson Crusoe names the fellow he finds Friday to commemorate the day on which he rescued him in Defoe's novel. Um, Crusoe fundamentally enslaves Friday. Mm-hmm. and reports Friday's behavior as if you're only too glad to be enslaved. Um, this works perfectly with Kipling, uh, th- who talk, gives us the phrase white man's burden. Right? So, you know, you send your sons out there to the empire, but you're doing a service to mankind. That's what it is. Um, and maybe these lower types, these less than white types don't deserve it. So what happens here is that the uh, the less than white types mean to abandon uh, our speaker in our narrator because having seen the egg get dropped, the inner narrator physically abused this fellow. And so the hell with him. And they take the canoe and go off on their own. Um, in fact, he takes out his gun, and although the, the half-raft, half-canoe thing is way offshore, he manages to get a lucky shot and kill the fellow who is paddling. 
And then eventually he manages to swim out to where the other fellow is. And the other fellow has apparently died of the wounds that our European had given him earlier. Or maybe it was the centipede sting. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The fellow says it's the centipede sting, but we don't really know. And eventually, uh, our fellow comes back, eats one egg, then another egg turns out to have uh, an embryo in it, and so he hatches the last egg, and this becomes Apiornis Island. The the chick that comes out, even at birth, is already the size of a full-grown hen. It follows him around. Clearly, it imprints on him, although that word was not uh, a concept for birds at that time mm-hmm. that was published and he's cute he's, he's cute but then he gets bigger and then he wants food and before you know it there's trouble because when this thing becomes a 14 foot high bird uh, with a sharp beak our guy has got to defend himself or so he feels and uh, ultimately he manages to kill this bird too after four years, he uh, winds up with nothing to show for his efforts except some bones of the Apiornis and uh, some eggshell fragments. The company that hired him uh, refused to pay him. We get a running commentary through the story. Uh, Dawson's wouldn't pay me, but they couldn't send because they said I wasn't in their employ because um, I wasn't sending them stuff, but they couldn't send me a termination notice. So, in fact, he goes to court. So it's a rather famous case. The fellow's name is Butcher. Mm-hmm. He bears a scar from the Apiornis right on his face. Um, you can't help but wonder. Now, we never get told whether he wins or loses the case, but we know that the case is crucial. We know that exploration is reported as extraction. It's a matter of titillating the interests of scientists and curiosity seekers. And that's why people risk their lives doing it. It's all economic. So um, Winslow was telling me as much, that is that, uh, well, at the end it says, well, you know, I had this Apiornis and they get this Apiornis vastus and then it's Apiornis maximus. And then there's an even bigger one found, Apiornis Titan. And then your Vastus was found after old Havers died in his collection. And then Vastissimus turned up, which means even the most vast. Winslow was telling me as much, said the man with a scar. If they get any more Apiornises, he reckons some scientific swell will go and burst a blood vessel. But it was a queer thing to happen to a man, meaning his whole experience on the island, It was a queer thing to happen to a man, wasn't it, altogether? So we're left with this question at the end. Um, It's the end of a race, right? It's an extinction of a huge and significant animal. And this guy is, well, that was an odd thing to happen to a man. It's all man-centered. It's all our curiosity, and it all hinges on economics and how economics feeds into what Europeans want out of the rest of the world. It is, in fact, I think, quite different from Kipling. Kipling seems to justify empire, 
Wills, it seems to me, is trying to show that it's not justified. Mm -hmm. I note very much that ending. um, It ends in a question, as you point out. But it was a queer thing to happen to a man, wasn't it, altogether? And our outer narrator, the person who is receiving this story and presumably telling this story to us, the the readers, um, doesn't answer it. He doesn't include that in his interaction with Butcher. We never learn the narrator's name. It could be H.G. Wells if he was out orchid collecting, right? Um, we, don't, we don't even know where we are. Um, but the fact that this guy is here uh, with a s- bundle full of orchids makes us think that he is I- involved in this system as well. Um, he's there to sell his his finds and uh, is not actually interested in disclosing exactly what he's found, like he's being jealously guarding of it in a certain sense. I'm just going to read that opening. The man with the scarred face leant, leant over the table and looked at my bundle. Orchids, he asked. A few, I said. Cypridiums, he, he said. Chiefly, said I. Anything new? He shakes his head because the next line is, I thought not. I did these islands 25 years, 25, 27 years ago. If you find anything new here, well, it's brand new. I didn't leave much. I'm not a collector, said I. I was young then, he went on. (laughs) Lord, I, how I used to fly around. He seemed to make, take my measure. I was in the East. So he just starts in this story about what happened to him. But our narrator says, I'm not a collector. What's he doing there? He's doing the same thing that this other guy was. But instead of harvesting for, for someone else, he's, maybe he's just like working. Maybe he's a laborer. We don't really know. But the fact that it starts with this orchids, right, which was a huge market. And in fact, I think the very first well stories we did on this podcast was... Uh, it's it's called the strange orchid. Was yeah. that yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, and orchids uh, had this sort of um, exoticism to them. That's you know it's still around. People are still obsessed with orchids and they're harvesting and how how strange they are compared to other flowers and how difficult they are to raise. Um, but it ends with that question. It was a queer thing to happen to a man, wasn't it, altogether? Absolutely it was. That's the answer. Very queer. And we can't wholly trust that this is a true story, given that he himself says that he was a liar. (laughs) He says at at points in the story it's quite funny. It's also quite horrific. Um, and, And that mix is very disturbing. But he says at one point to to our outer narrative, that he uh, would tell the bird lies about his friends back home. So, <laughs> that he's he's ad- admitted a liar, and then he's got this outrageous story. No, uh, even our, our um, author here, um, whether it be H.G. Wells uh, or the outer narrator, uh, puts a star on uh, one of the lines. The missionaries say that natives have legends about when they were alive, but I never heard any such stories myself. Asterisk, asterisk, and then 
we follow that down to the bottom of the page. No European known is to a no European is known to have seen a live apornis, with the doubtful exception of MacAndrew, who visited Madagascar in seventeen forty five and then HGW, right? So we are given this extra doubt, right? Right in the text of the of the presented story. And then I noticed there's this strange phenomenon where our inner narrator keeps saying things are rum. Uh, this is an adjective used to describe things basically as strange or weird. Um, mm-hmm. And then we end with that line. Uh, it's a, It was a queer thing. And I think it is very queer. So uh, the number of times rum turns up as a word meaning strange is, I think, three times. Um, he describes uh, early on in the story, we went for eggs, me and two native chaps. Notice they're chaps here, not the N-word. Um, in one of their those rum canoes. Yeah, he doesn't have the exact word for it, right? So he's the strange canoe, the odd canoe. The next time he uses it is to describe the island. He says, it's rum how dull an atoll is. Um, and we have this interaction on the island at first when he's by himself he has this dream of being robinson crusoe he actually becomes robinson crusoe in a sense that he's been marooned on an island which uh if you dig into the robinson crusoe story it's about an actual guy who is marooned in the same way that uh our uh, uh inner narrator here was because his shipmate couldn't stand him um and uh, then uh, we get that s- sort of change when he becomes the father, in a sense, to this bird. And then the final time it's used, rum, hatch, sir, when my head was pillowed on it and I s- was asleep, I heard a whack and felt a jar and sat up and there was the end of, of the egg pecked out and a rum little brown head looking out at me. Lord, I said, you're welcome. And with a little difficulty, he came out. So, uh, to me, I think the central question um, of this story, you know, this queer business, is something like, why does the bird turn on him? Why does the bird stop uh, doting on him and his every action and being his constant companion and friend? Uh, or maybe an even different kind of relationship, and why does it become uh, supposedly a violent beast? And I think there's two possibilities. One is we are getting a straight-up narrative from the inner narrator um, that he's telling us everything truthfully as it is, and he says some things that are, um, frankly, horrified, that basically he murders two people, Um he uh, he he treats them as if they are garbage, um, and his slaves, and he doesn't have any remorse about that, or um, he's lying about what actually happened, and I don't think we can a- we can know the answer to that, but I think that is part of what the question is at the end. How would our outer narrator respond to this question? Because they live in a kind of harmony uh, with him fishing 
for the bird when it's young. It grows healthy and strong. He admires it. And yet when he kills it, um, for, he says for it attacking him, the logic doesn't seem to bear out unless this is supposedly the nature of the beast. So I have many questions, and I, I hope you have some takes on what these questions might have answers to. I, I do. Um, although I think that, as is so often true with Wells, that he gets one to ask questions is itself crucial. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want people to just look at the world and take it as it is. He wants people to think about the world and think how it might be, what their role in it is, and so on. And I think this is a good example. Whether that inner narrator is lying in the way he tells, in what he tells in his story, or telling the truth, either way, he certainly reveals himself as not caring about the lives of the natives. Now, I think that the the central uh, touchstone here is the overt, explicit comparison with Robinson Crusoe. Mm -hmm. uh, if you'll forgive me for this slight correction, Crusoe wasn't marooned on that desert island; he was shipwrecked on it. Oh no, I'm I'm I was talking about the the uh, story that inspired it. Uh, well, the story that inspired it, yes. yes, right, yes. That that is true. But in Defoe's novel, which is where we get a man Friday, mm -hmm. which is referred to here. That's how uh, the bird's called. He names the bird. Exactly. Um, in, in the real life story, there is no Friday. But in Defoe's novel, there is a Friday. So I think the reference here is or the point of comparison is the, the fictional Robinson Crusoe. And that fictional Robinson Crusoe attempts to turn his world into a version of Europe. Mm -hmm. He builds a house, he you know, tries to keep track of um, what's going on. Um, he laments fiercely that having been sick, he's not sure if he's been keeping his calendar correctly, mm -hmm. uh, his count of days, and therefore he doesn't know if he will be able to celebrate Christmas properly. And I noticed that Apiornis Island is a Christmas story, hmm. published in the Christmas issue when it's first published mm -hmm. in 1894. So um, I think Robinson Crusoe is there. Robinson is shipwrecked and then sort of accidentally having become uh, an inhabitant of this deserted island, um, he does what he can. He sees one black being chased by other blacks, in fact, cannibals, and he saves Friday by killing the others. Here, we get a narrator, an inner narrator, who kills two natives, two blacks, but not, in fact, to save someone else. He does it for himself. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if on Apiornis Island, the real owners of the island, like Caliban in The Tempest being the real owner of the island, if the real owners of the island are the Apiornises. Then we note that first the black man drops one egg that's gone. Then they eat another egg. Then they see an embryo in the third. And so with the fourth egg, he decides to hatch it. And what he thinks is 
as it starts to grow. Think of what I can make of this if I bring it back as a curiosity. Right? He's going to enslave the bird and make money on it. So does he feed it? Yes. But he feeds it apparently not because he really has affection for it. Um, he feeds it because it helps assuage his loneliness. I think that's right. And then once it gets smarter, it becomes a potential source of capital. So when it turns out he can't feed it well enough and the thing who it's, that's bigger and stronger than he is, the thing um, is unwilling to just uh, do whatever he, he's told to do. He wants food. Um, what does our guy do? He adopts a trick that is learned from the natives of South America. He makes a bolo mm-hmm. and uses it to tangle up the Bjornis' feet, then leaps on the fallen bird and uses his knife to kill him. Um, This seems to me to be so consistently an anti-Robinson Crusoe that in a way what I think what he's doing is letting us know that Crusoe himself should in fact be deprecated. We should understand that, that Robinson Crusoe is to some extent an anti-colonial tract, but, you know, empire works. Um, But by now, 100 years later, Wells is saying, no, the very impulse to do these things, we should understand this is wrong. It's not a rum thing, a queer thing for a man to be involved in this. It's a terrible thing Mm. for a man to be a murderer. And to kill what should have been his friend, his pet. I mean, it's just so I think we're supposed to answer these questions. And the only reason that we doubt what the answer should be, I think, is, as you point out so well, the guy who's the outer narrator himself is sort of a liar, not letting on what he has. Mm-hmm. He's himself a collector. Um, they are colluding in maintaining an economy that makes the scientific swells have a lot of power. And these are, after all, the glories of Victorian society. How can a reader not be a little bit reluctant to see this as nothing but a criticism? Mm. I think in catering to that, you know, it's a men's club and so on. In catering to that, Wells is letting us know that he understands that we would rather that this were just fine. But then he says, but think about it. But think about it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I note in one of the printings of this story, not all of them, but one of them, uh, it has a subtitle, and I think it's a, a very strange subtitle. It's called uh, Epornis Island, an unvarnished narrative. <laughs> um, <laughs> you put that on it that way, you're saying this is a straight-up story. Um, yeah. And yet, um, <laughs> I don't think it is. So, are we to believe, as you read this, Jesse, um, that the inner narrator, whose name, after all, is Butcher, mm-hmm. um, 
are we to believe that um, the butcher is actually telling the truth um, that he did spend four years away, sued Dawson's, um, his erstwhile employer, um, but in fact, he didn't in- encounter any of these these birds and mm-hmm. the, the bones and anything. He's just sticking with the story because he wants he wants money. It's it's so unclear. Um, there there's one tiny little note that I, I you know we we know about his character and, uh, from what he says, but there yeah. there is one note about how he acts. Uh, our outer narrator takes out his ba- his pouch of tobacco. And without asking, the uh, inner narrator takes, Butcher takes some, doesn't say thank you, just takes. That's true. He doesn't. But, you know, um, the order is somewhat different. First, Butcher takes out his pipe. Mm-hmm. And then the inner narrator takes out his tobacco pouch. So It's, uh, it's left unsaid. Right. But but the fact that he doesn't say thank you is significant either way. And he just continues the story, right? He just continues on with the story. And it is as if uh, this inner, uh, the outer narrator has has come to him and said, hey, have you got any interesting stories? This is a guy, it's almost like he's bragging and proud, or he wants to know what to think about what he did as well. Yeah. You know, this guy, we're told, has come to Madagascar after having spent a number of years in two other locales. Mm-hmm. One, he spent time in the East Indies. And another, he spent some time, meaning years, in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And, and here he is now in Madagascar um, trying to, to uh, collect by the way, the, the collecting companies, Jamrocks and Dons, are real companies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he's trying to collect, meaning, I take it, people with money are back in England ready to comfortably buy uh, what it is he'll find. He's the one who doesn't have the money. He's like a prospector. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just trying to extract stuff. Robinson Crusoe, um, because he was presumed to be dead, having spent years on his island, when he finally is found and gets to return to England, he had been declared dead and therefore was not in his father's will, and he was destitute. So what does he do? He goes to Brazil and manages to found his own plantation and makes money on his own. The contrast between Brazil as a useful endpoint for Crusoe to actually make something of the third world, as opposed to Butcher, who manages to go to these places and still winds up needing to try to extract more, even at the price of death, from the new world. I mean, from the third world. Um, that contrast, I think, is pretty strong. And I think Wells really does want us when he says, you know, is it, is it odd? You know, he wants us to think. I think he wants us to come down um, on the side of thinking this is bad and doing that at the height of Victoria's empire. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty gutsy thing. I think what he's counting on is that when people will read this and then they'll read the newspaper, 
they'll find there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.